The 2010 Nobel Peace Prize went to the imprisoned Chinese human rights activist Liu Xiaobo. The award ceremony took place on December 10th, but since the Chinese government has Liu Xiaobo's wife under house arrest, there really wasn't anyone to accept the award. On stage, there was simply an empty chair. Here in the United States, if you weren't paying attention, you might have missed the story because the headlines were all WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks. But if you were in China, well then, you definitely missed the story. One of the ways in which Chinese internet censorship works so effectively is that it's often not noticed by the majority of internet users. Um, foreign websites that don't load, uh, uh, there's no message saying they've been censored. They just don't load and it looks the same as it would if the server was down. Uh, so for many people, you know, even if they try to get onto, say, the BBC website during that week, they may just think, oh, well, that's being flaky. Jeremy Goldcorn's been running the Chinese media and culture website Donway.org from Beijing since 2003. He's an authority on the Great Firewall of China. I asked him if things got worse for the Nobel ceremony. Well, uh, there was uh, some additional internet blocking uh, during the, the week of uh, the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony. And the other thing that happened was that a large number of uh, Chinese uh, dissidents, activists and writers were detained uh, or prevented from leaving China or uh, put under some kind of observation or house arrest. Um, so there was a, a sort of a general um, clampdown on any potential troublemakers uh, in the period around the ceremony. But the Chinese censors weren't just blocking Western media. A lot of blockages in uh, China happened in the domestic systems because uh, there are a lot of um, uh, social networking services and microblogging services, you know, as copycats to uh, Twitter and Facebook, you know, because uh, those two services are, are totally blocked in China. However, the internal, I mean, the, the domestic systems uh, uh, worked very hard to try to block any alternative phrases to uh, talk about uh, Liu Xiaobo's um, winning of the Nobel Prize. Isaac Mao is a Chinese blogger and activist. Firstly, they, they try to stop people talking directly about uh, Nobel Prize, the, the, the word of Nobel, uh, and also the, some alternatives to Nobel Peace Prize, like uh, Explosive Prize, because Nobel is, he himself is an uh, expert on explosive. Uh, and all those kind of uh, terms have been uh, blocked uh, totally. And then people create new sentences like empty chair, and empty chair become the sensitive keywords. And then people create more, you know, uh, alternatives like uh, the Liu joke. And because uh, Liu, the name, you know, is a very common uh, Chinese last name. And uh, 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 if you try to block those sentences, you know, people will cry out, you know. I'm talking another person with the name of Liu, not Liu Xiaobo. Why do you censor my sentence? But uh, Many of their uh, uh, um, information were deleted, and some of their accounts were totally uh, removed from the system. And uh, those business, they didn't really receive those instructions, you know, uh, exactly about which phrase should they block. 
However, they create their own criteria because they don't want to get into trouble if、um, their users talk too much about this、uh, event. In the 90s, President Clinton said, "You can't censor the internet. It's like trying to nail Jello to the wall." Lo and behold, the Chinese figured out how to nail Jello to the wall.、Uh, they can figure out how to do most things when you can put that much state manpower on something. Christian Witten is a former Bush administration advisor and a frequent Fox News commentator. He's a very vocal critic of the Obama administration's response, or as he sees it, lack of response to WikiLeaks. So I asked him if perhaps the question we should be asking is, what would China do? China does have this immense internet censorship capability. It's multifaceted. It's, it's it, part of it is intimidating web hosts and search companies. Part of it is、uh, going after dissidents or people it views as dissidents who put nasty things, what it thinks are nasty things, on the web.、Uh, so that really is bringing a police state to bear. So that's not something we should try to recreate. I wouldn't say in the U.S., but there's a huge rationale, I think, to go after WikiLeaks. To assault it electronically, this really is just self-defense. So then we could do some of the things China does. Well, you know, we have a U.S. Cyber Command. It's a new, organ, relatively new organization. The head of Cyber Command is also concurrently the head of the National Security Agency, which, as you、uh, probably know, is our main、uh, cryptological, cryptanalysis organization that、um, you know cracks foreign codes and helps encipher U.S. information. So they have significant technological means, and I would have to assume that we can do anything to bad guys that bad guys do to us. The simplest thing, which is a denial of service attack that just shuts down a website for the time being, to something more sophisticated like a, a tailored bug. But also, I wouldn't foreclose on voluntary action by web hosting companies or by telecommunications companies. Most organizations, most businesses, are actually inclined to be law-abiding. Whether it's a web hosting company or telecommunications company that provides cell phones, or banks that provide banking services to organizations like WikiLeaks, all of those、uh, organizations can be approached on a friendly basis at first, or on a hostile basis if necessary,、uh, to、uh, go and ask them to stop. You just have to go and ask. Okay, okay. What would China do? Isn't the right question. But this WikiLeaks story seems to have turned everything upside down. And now I am questioning pretty much everything I used to think about the internet and freedom, things that are near and dear to this radio program. So I'm turning the entire hour over this week to WikiLeaks. My name is Benjamin Walker, and this is Too Much Information. Our story begins in New York City on the morning of December 12th, two days after the Nobel Prize ceremony. And a few days after Amazon kicked WikiLeaks off its servers, at the request of Senator Joe Lieberman, a midtown Manhattan restaurant was the scene of a flash conference, and Bill Bowen was there. They called it a flash conference because the Personal Democracy Forum put this symposium on WikiLeaks together in less than a week. But the vibe was really more flash mob for the Internet Illuminati. Everybody was there: Mark Pesci, Jay Rosen, Doug Rushkoff. Ariana Huffington and Jeff Jarvis. I'm here because I'm vitally interested in transparency and openness, and fearful of what is happening now with a clampdown. We should be going the opposite direction to an opening up. Government should be transparent by default and secret by necessity. 
And one of the lessons of WikiLeaks is that much of the information that's out there should not have been classified. It is the people's government, but it's not our information, and it should be. Fear seemed to be what motivated all of these people to get out of bed on a cold Saturday morning. When Amazon and PayPal froze the accounts and denied service to WikiLeaks, people freaked out. Even the folks who aren't sympathetic to WikiLeaks. Although, to be fair, I didn't meet more than one person who wasn't overwhelmingly sympathetic to Julian Assange and his organization. The rhetoric did get intense. We've been colonized. Technologist Zeynep Tufeki. Not by, you know, a foreign state necessarily, but by our own institutions. The latest uh, brouhaha has revealed that the corporate-owned infrastructure is too tied in with the whims of the state. Censorship has been privatized. Our comments have been privatized and they are now subject to private censorship, yes. Panelists all seem to agree that the WikiLeaks story revealed the power private companies wield over online expression. There were repeated calls for a decentralized, peer-to-peer, self-healing mesh network, something not unlike the old FidoNet. Blogger and activist Rebecca McKinnon said it was time to rein these corporations in. Companies just uh, at the first sign of fear of a lawsuit or first sign of fear of trouble with the national security apparatus just aren't just going to dump uh, controversial speakers. So you need to allow private enterprise to be private enterprise, but you also, we also need new mechanisms to ensure that they're held accountable to the public interest and to convince private actors that over the long run it's in their vital commercial interest to have us trust them not to sell us out. The WikiLeaks story has not only exposed the fragility of the Internet's infrastructure, but it has also exposed the failures of the watchdog press. Jay Rosen has been writing on this subject for years on his blog, Press Think. Well, I, I think the watchdog press doesn't do what it says it can do. It doesn't actually provide the eye on power that it says it does. And that's one of the reasons why I think people are willing to trust WikiLeaks. And the fact that sources would pick WikiLeaks over the Washington Post, I think, is significant. And is that because the watchdog press is not able to protect its sources the way WikiLeaks is? Or would you say it's because they just don't have the motivation to run with the material once they have it? Um, well, there is a problem with protecting sources because a stateless news organization doesn't have to answer subpoenas and it has advantages in, in that respect. Um, but I think the main problem is that um, the press has gotten too entangled in the secret world itself. It has become too willing to give up transparency in order to get the story. Access. Y yeah, the politics of access and, and the relinquishing of uh, the public's right to know as you go further and further into the secret world. And there's just been such a vast increase in secrecy and opacity by the government itself. One hopes long term that this, this will put greater pressure on governments, uh, realizing that they may ultimately be susceptible or vulnerable to their own WikiLeaks. Um, That's Carney Ross, the former British diplomat who resigned his post in protest to the invasion of Iraq. He also believes that a problem is the growing number of state secrets. He was quick to point out that the publishing of diplomatic cables would be of little consequence if the stated goals of the U.S. government were consistent with its actions. It is that discrepancy between what they do and what they say that WikiLeaks is exploiting. If there were no such discrepancy, there would be no WikiLeaks, and the revelation of secret U.S. cables would not be that interesting because it would be consistent with what the U.S. is doing in public. 
Another hot topic was what to make of the vigilante actions of Anonymous, who were coordinating DDoS attacks against the web pages of corporations attempting to censor WikiLeaks. The main trending topic of the day, though, was the infrastructure of the internet itself. And I was glad to run into my friend, Douglas Rushkoff, whose piece on this I'd read earlier that morning on CNN.com. He seemed amused that the cable news channel had turned to him for his take on what they could have only seen as the latest celebrity scandal. You know, last year it's the Tiger Woods scandal, now it's the WikiLeaks, so they need to have material. So if they're coming to me, I was like, oh my. Um, They probably looked at the list of the people coming to this conference and then just sent us all emails. But you bit. Yeah, I bit. Why not? Why not? I mean, I've got an opinion that I haven't seen uh, expressed. I mean, maybe it can't be. I mean, I looked at the comments, and um, people... People seem to think that, that the whole debate is like, are you pro-Julian or anti-Julian, pro-WikiLeaks or anti-WikiLeaks? And it's like, that's not the issue for me. You know, the issue for me is, is sort of bigger. The issue for me is, you know, does this finally make transparent for people the fact that the Internet is not a decentralized network? That it never was, and unless we remake it, it won't be. That the, the freedoms that we have on the Internet are there but for the grace of the government and corporations that run it. This isn't conspiracy theory, this is basic architecture. This is how DNS servers work, it's how our, our uh, internet service providers work, it's how our server space works. If there's something they, meaning a corporation or the government, doesn't like, they can flick you off the internet like you're turning off a light switch. It's that easy. In a way, this is sort of an I told you so moment for Rushkoff and some of the other speakers at the PDF conference. But it remains to be seen if this moment will lead to any positive action. Perhaps the most important question regarding WikiLeaks is whether or not this form of publishing is a form of journalism. And while nobody in the journalism business will deny that the future of the profession lies in doing things with large sets of data, a number of journalists, like The New Yorker's George Packer, have denounced WikiLeaks, claiming there's no journalistic value to the cables. Cartoonist Joe Alterio sees it differently. From Astana, Kazakhstan, date April 17, 2008, to State Department, classification confidential. On March 7th, two days after his trip to the U.S. was canceled, Prime Minister Mazamov was spotted by Emboff at Chocolat, one of Astana's trendiest nightclubs. Um, and the picture is of um, Prime Minister Mazamov being escorted in a back door while um, someone tries to take his picture. Joe Alterio is turning the WikiLeaks cables into cartoons. You can see them for yourself on the website hilobrow.com. At his studio on Manhattan's Upper East Side, he explained to me what he's doing. Um, I'm, I'm actually doing um, a cable um, discussing a, um, a wedding for a Russian oligarch that gets a bit out of hand. And um, it's, I mean, the, the, the cable is just unbelievable. It's, it's actually one of the, the more popular ones that's actually um, been, been talked about. But um, right now I'm drawing a drunken... Russian Air Force general who insists that there's nary a difference between cognac and wine. And um, it looks like he's got a couple glasses that have already fallen over, yes. and, and he's on the on the verge of falling over as well. And and and, and talk about pathos, you know. In the next frame, um, some of his some of his uh, 
his compatriots tell him to give him a tell tell the uh, the, the the embassy officials to give him a break because um, considering his uh, his position as anti-terrorism um, uh, official in uh, Chechnya, he's he's bound to get assassinated sooner rather than later. So you might as well let the man drink a little. How did you uh, work out in your head? Was this okay? Was this illegal? Was this something I, I felt okay with doing? You know, to be totally honest, I I didn't really think about it probably as much as I should have because this is not really anything that I'm making up on my own. I, obviously, I'm making up the drawings and I'm taking some creative liberties with what actually happened. But if anything else, I'm just kind of remixing information that's out there. So you don't expect to go to Guantanamo? I, I'm not expecting it right now. You know, if I if I do go, send Reese's Pieces, please. <laughs> I mean, you know, if if I was to go to to these leaks and and read about, um, you know, uh, uh, secret passcodes or places of of nuclear material that's being kept unguarded, you know, I'm I would be as freaked out as anyone. But these are these are tiny tiny events that, if anything else, I think just give a greater roundness to the world from beyond our little bubble. I think that these cables reveal a sense of nuance to the world that we don't often get in our media landscape, um, especially when it comes to places of the world that, that a lot of Americans don't know about. I mean, when's the last time you, you, know, you read something in USA Today about Azerbaijan? You just don't. And seeing and reading stories about people who are having very normal issues, normal conflicts, they have um, human emotions that um, you know come into play in their in their normal everyday world. I think that it actually humanizes the world to a great effect, and I think that in the end, that is to the U.S.'s benefit, uh, not only as a population of being more understanding, but I also think that to the U.S. government, it's a more of a benefit to have the world see us in a more direct and unvarnished way. I do see these the these cables as journalism. What what it is is that it in a in a in a time when our media landscape has fallen down, the irony is that the US government and these leaks have actually picked up the slack and allowed us to see the world in a way that the media wishes they could do. I mean, the Times wishes they had these type of insights to the rest of the world. As you can hear, the cables do have a pretty serious literary quality to them. And this is something many journalists have commented on. But I believe it was political reporter Chris Beam who first picked this up in a piece he did for Slate. When I first started reading through the cables and reading the analyses of the cables, the first stuff you come across is the big news. You know, Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, talks about, um, about Iran or, you know, North Korea is closer to the brink of collapse than we thought. Um, and so you're directed to those cables first, but... Then I started to realize that a lot of the cables are were either flying under the radar or um, only being picked up by people on Twitter because they were they contained some hilarious detail or another. One of my favorites is uh, this cable uh, that describes a wedding in Dagestan, which is uh, a region in the North Caucasus in uh, in Russia, and the, the the writer just comes brings out these amazing details like the wedding singer who quote 
could not make it because he was a sh- he was shot a few days before the wedding, or um, he says that uh, quote the alcohol consumption before, during, and after this Muslim wedding was stupendous. Sort of getting at the idea that <laughs> these all these guys probably preach abstinence, but um, in practice are just you know soaking themselves in, in, in vodka. He talks about uh, getting into this car as part of the wedding motorcade, and um, there's this gun at his feet, so he couldn't really sit comfortably. And this is detail that doesn't really add anything to, to our relations with Russia or um, Chechnya or any, any of these countries in the region. Um, it's really just a, a great detail that he couldn't leave out. And, you know, this is a world that we're not used to reading about, so it, it, in some ways it's like travel literature, like these they're written from the perspective of an American who's over in some random country, uh, seeing customs, people that are totally unfamiliar, trying to make sense of them. Um, and it, it just occurred to me that these that goal was a lot was really similar to what journalists do, to what you know uh, literary travel writers do, um, and the product is the same a lot of the time too. Um, some of the writing is just really, really good and funny and pithy, and uh, their the observations are are really keen and have a a strong understanding of their context um, and like the the culture that that surrounds these scenes. So it just occurred to me that these people are deserve recognition as more than just you know bureaucratic functionaries at the bottom of the State Department. Pay scale. Um, I think the journalistic value is huge. WikiLeaks has brought Daniel Ellsberg back into the news. In 1971, he leaked the Pentagon Papers, a top-secret study of government decision-making about the Vietnam War, to the New York Times and the Washington Post. And like Julian Assange, he was vilified, harassed, and smeared. And he almost got locked up forever. Today, he's still championing human rights and freedom of the press and protesting unjust wars. When I spoke to him, he'd just gotten out of jail after committing an act of civil disobedience at the White House. He told me it was his 80th arrest. It's the first time in my life when the number of arrests has, has gone beyond my chronological age. Uh, so I just regard this as the first arrest of the rest of my life. <laughs> so many folks in the media are asking the question, is Julian Assange the new Daniel Ellsberg. But for me, it seems the more important comparison would be Bradley Manning, the young intelligence analyst who claims that he was moved by conscience to hand over the classified documents to WikiLeaks. And again, many of the discussions about Manning seem to only focus on the diplomatic cables. But he's also alleged to be the leaker of the collateral murder video, a video that both shows American forces killing innocent civilians in Baghdad and proves that the government has been lying to the American people about the issue of civilian casualties. So I'm wondering what you make of this comparison, you and Manning. 
No, you put it well. The direct analogy, of course, is with me and Man and uh, Manning, if he is the source. Now, the basis of these allegations is the partial and edited chat logs that Adrian Lamo, the man who informed on him, uh, put out, uh, conversations on the computer that he'd had with Manning, in which uh, he reports that Manning said that he had given the Apache helicopter collateral murder video, and uh, also the uh, 260,000 cables, which came out most recently by the Army. So let's assume for purposes of discussion here that he's the source, since as far as I'm concerned, that means giving him the credit for it uh, in, in real admiration. You know, he's locked away in solitary confinement, and there have been recent reports about his horrific prison conditions, but it also seems that he's being locked out of the story, and again, by focusing on you and Assange... It... Well, I think that Assange would be talking more about him, except that he doesn't want at all to appear to be identifying who his source was. In fact, I just heard him say in an interview that they had arranged the technology of uh, WikiLeaks to conceal, even from WikiLeaks, the actual identity of the source. And he says he hadn't heard the name Bradley Manning until it was reported in the press. So uh, if he were to, he's even been criticized for not directing more attention to Manning. I think that's misguided. Uh, He clearly doesn't feel in a position to be talking about Manning or congratulating him, lest he be directly contributing to Manning's prosecution. And uh, I am hypothetically willing to use Bradley Manning as the name of the source, since he, after all, has been accused by the Army. And there are these chat logs to introduce. Incidentally, the chat logs may not figure in the trial because they could be regarded as hearsay. So apparently they're putting these heavy pressures on Manning, his uh, horrific conditions of uh, incarceration. So the reason I admire him so much is that I've waited so long for someone else to be willing to take a risk of uh, being identified as the source of a large amount of material. Uh, People have done very creditable leaks over the years, almost every other day, but usually on such a small scale that they feel they have a very low chance of being identified or punished, and in fact almost none has been identified or punished in all these years. But to put out the kind of uh, volume of material that can really have an effect makes it much more likely that uh, you can be identified as one of the relatively few people who had access to all that information. And so you are taking more consciously a major risk. And uh, uh, I certainly at the time felt it was the right thing for me to do, and I've always felt that since, uh, that you know this is what I should have done. Yeah. By the same token, uh, I felt that many other people ought to be considering doing that, and some of them should be doing it, even at a high cost. In the end, I didn't pay a really high cost uh, because of the government crimes done against me. But uh, they had in mind uh, putting me in prison for life with a 115-year sentence. So I I did face a very high cost, uh, and which I was willing to do. Well, it turns out that that's very unusual. I I can't even explain why it's as unusual as it is, given the stakes here. Yeah. Uh, It does seem, though, that with the horrifying response to both, you know, to his person 
our hypothetical source if it is Manning, but it also seems in the media the way he's being treated as a traitor, you know, yeah. pretty much point. It seems that it's going to act as a deterrent. Well, it's what people fear uh, they'll receive, and with real, real, <laughs> they're uh, they're quite likely to get it uh, if they anger their bosses and the administration and. Uh, corporations, they can be sure that a very high-powered publicity apparatus will be turned on them. It's not just a spontaneous reaction by the public. It's a very manipulated uh, publicity campaign to demonize these people, as is happening with both Assange and uh, Manning. But um, in a society, it's also striking how many uh, people in the media who one would think are on the side of... uh, openness and of truth-telling and of informing the public and thus would at least give the benefit of the doubt to the truth-teller or the whistleblower as opposed to the government. That doesn't seem to be the way it works. Uh, Their need for access, I think, uh, with uh, high and mighty and really the degree to which this leads them to a kind of identification with the high and mighty, I think they're really speaking as if they were uh, speaking for the Pentagon. Oh, I know. You see that. And that gets to my last question here, which I'm dying to ask you. So today, Daniel Ellsberg, if you had the Pentagon Papers in this media landscape, what would you do? Would you go to the New York Times or would you go to WikiLeaks? Now that I know about WikiLeaks, uh, I would certainly think of WikiLeaks. For many of Julian Assange's supporters, all the wall-to-wall WikiLeaks coverage of the past month has only strengthened their case that he should be Time Magazine's choice for Person of the Year. But Time had someone else in mind. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg. I personally find this choice great material for making jokes. Here's one I just made up. Congratulations, to Time Magazine's 2008 Person of the Year. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right to me. That's Global Voices blogger Jillian York. She just wrote an op-ed for Al Jazeera in which she claims Mark Zuckerberg is actually a really awful pick for the 2010 Person of the Year. This hasn't been a great year for, for Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, he's come under a lot of fire for different privacy breaches on Facebook. You know, the uh, the third-party apps that were leaking user data to uh, advertisers, and then the, the incident earlier this year when Facebook changed users' default privacy settings and people got so angry that they were you know, starting petitions to get people to quit Facebook. Um, so I don't know. I, I, think it's, I think it's kind of an odd choice. Well, in your op-ed, you seem to be using words that are a little harsher than odd. Can you talk about how uh, their policies draw a lot of criticism from activist groups who claim that Facebook makes it impossible for them to use the platform. There have been a lot of cases of this, and I've I've been documenting them for about a year now. But a couple weeks ago, there was a big one where um, a 400,000 or so strong group on Facebook, it was an uh, Egyptian anti-torture group that that was hosting their content on Facebook, um, they were kicked off the, the platform because their administrator was using a pseudonym. Now, now, he was using the pseudonym because in Egypt, that was a way for him to stay safe, to you know evade the authorities, to continue to lead this group. Um, Zuckerberg, on the other hand, has said that, uh, that Facebook's real name policy, they require users to sign up with their real name. Um, he calls that, you know, uh, sort of 
having, you know, he says that having more than one identity is an example of a lack of integrity, which I think is really kind of a Western-centric way of looking at uh, at Facebook, um, you know, because he's got all these users all over the world, uh, but he's applying this sort of, this policy to people who really, really can't use their real names. Well, it's one thing to criticize time for picking Zuckerberg, but why do you think Julian Assange would make a better choice for the 2010 person of the year? No matter what people think of WikiLeaks and Assange, Time's Person of the Year Award is not necessarily a recognition of positivity. And so it's really, it's a rec- it's recognition of a person who's done the most to influence events of the year. And in that case, and, you know, I mean, I think that there's a very strong argument to be made that Julian Assange would have been a better choice. He certainly had a huge impact on the media and on, on uh, foreign policy this year, I mean, on all sorts of things. This has been in headlines since, uh, since I can't, was it March? when the uh, the collateral murder video was released, and ever since then, it's just been growing. And so I would say that, that Julian Assange is definitely the person who has done the most to influence events of the year. Well, he did win the Reader's Choice poll by quite a large margin, it seems. Yeah, Julian Assange got 382,026 votes on the Time Person of the Year uh, public poll, whereas Mark Zuckerberg got only 18,353. There were a lot of people in the middle there, um, like... Uh, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan got 233,640, Lady Gaga behind that. So, you know, I mean, Julian Assange was clearly at the head of the pack. And, you know, some people might argue that um, the results were skewed because of Anonymous going out there and telling people to, to go and click. But uh, he, he was clearly at the top of the poll. You know, there's a lot of bloggers already writing about that making a very direct connection between them not picking Assange to sort of... Uh, the Amazon PayPal stories. Do you think that's like pushing it too far? Right. Well, so, you know, I don't, I don't think that direct government pressure in this case was very likely. Um, but I think that, that more likely is that time sort of chose to appease the government rather than to actually respond to any request. There's a business interest here as well. You've got the risk of losing subscribers. I mean, they've definitely chosen controversial people, George W. Bush, for example, um, but they haven't shown, gone, they haven't really gone with anyone that's particularly controversial to Americans in that, in the way that Assange might be. and WikiLeaks have achieved something that they did not probably intend to achieve, which is this major fundamental rethink of how the internet works. No one has been following the WikiLeaks story more closely than the internet theorist Yevgeny Morozov. He's been posting regular updates on his blog, on the foreign policy website, and his Twitter stream... Well, this is kind of hard to explain. For the past few weeks, his Twitter stream has been a constant source of information for WikiLeaks junkies like myself. It's like he's adding links and commentary 24 hours a day. Uh, well, I would say more like 18 uh, uh, than 24, but um, yeah. It's, uh, well, I think you know it's probably the biggest story uh, related to the internet that I've had a chance to follow in, in the last few years. 
And I, I, you know, I do think that it's very important to get it right at this point. Uh, and if you really start digging deep into WikiLeaks history and background and what their associates have been up to, I mean, it, uh, you end up with a much more complex picture of what it's all about. And to me, it's just it's a fascinating story in a sense that, you know, a project like WikiLeaks can also be about forward-looking issues. You know, it can be about uh, reform of, uh, you know, intellectual property regimes. It can be about, uh, you know, net neutrality. I mean, there are all sorts of issues which can now be bundled together under this rubric of openness or, you know, internet freedom. In, in, you know, and I use this term in a completely different meaning that people at the U.S. State Department would use it. But I do think that there is an immense potential for, you know, Assange, but also for many people who are now coalescing behind this movement to basically embrace the ideals of, uh, you know, open internet and, you know, flexible copyright regimes and many others, which, by the way, would have very little to do with geopolitics or foreign policy. And I don't think that there is anything wrong with that. I mean, the crucial decision right now is whether all of these people who feel sympathetic towards WikiLeaks and Anonymous is just one of that, you know, one of the many actors involved here. I think the decision for them is whether to become even more radicalized. While Yevgeny Morozov has applied his critical brain to many WikiLeaks-related topics, it is his take on the denial-of-service attacks that has garnered him the most attention. In fact, Anonymous quoted him in one of their press releases. Morozov himself quotes the philosopher John Rawls to demonstrate how, in some cases, DDoS attacks are legitimate digital acts of civil disobedience. More and more, actually, of our life and our, our public sphere is digitized. It's very important for us not to necessarily give up on protest. I mean, the fact that Amazon's uh, infrastructure is hidden somewhere underground in a data center makes it pretty much impenetrable to any activist who would want to go and organize a sit-in on this premises. I mean, it's unthinkable that they would be able to penetrate, you know, dip down underground to its data servers the way they could penetrate a Ford Motors, you know, factory uh, and, you know, organize the sit-in there. And, you know, so in a situation like this, as companies kind of bury their infrastructure somewhere, you know, you don't even know where all of those clouds are. And this, those clouds kind of don't have residency anymore. I mean, I, we do need some way to disrupt those activities if these companies engage in acts which are immoral. And I don't think that preventing people from, uh, you know, taking initiative uh, and kind of taking revenge and, you know, I, we, I mean, I, I don't think that we should necessarily limit their ability to do so because it may uh, be ugly or nasty. I mean, that's like, you know, uh, ugliness and nastiness is the unfortunate consequence of living in a democratic society. Again, you look at a place like Singapore, I mean, it's all very clean, but, you know, you cannot <laughs> do many other things, <laughs> right? So, again, you have, you, you have perfect order, but, you know, usually perfect order comes from, you know, living in police state. And, uh, you know, coming from a country like Belarus, where you cannot organize any protest unless you have permission from the authorities, I just think we should not, uh, you know, when it comes to liberal democracies, we should not just automatically presume that if a virtual demonstration causes some damage, 
it should be necessarily off limits. I mean, most demonstrations cause some damage. I mean, because you gather in public space and you may block a car from passing by and they'll have to take a detour or whatever. I mean, this is the normal cost of running a healthy liberal democracy. I mean, those costs are inevitable. And I think we have to be really careful in terms of uh, going too far and simply uh, building in limits for dissent and for expressing, uh, you know, one's disagreement uh, uh, with uh, policies of a company or of a country, uh, and you know, it, when it happens in cyberspace. I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that there's never an appropriate use of denial of service attacks as a form of civil disobedience. What I will say is that it really worries me to see people attempting to support WikiLeaks by using the same tactics that I'm watching people use to silence dissidents in Vietnam. Blogger and internet freedom champion Ethan Zuckerman doesn't question the legitimacy of DDoS attacks, but he does question their effectiveness. DDoS has become a really popular technique in online spaces uh, for interfering with speech. Um, In many ways, DDoS is a lot more effective than filtering out a website. If you're the government of Vietnam and you don't want people in your country to see Viet Thanh, uh, sort of the leading pro-democracy organization focused on Vietnam, you can filter it and, and no one in Vietnam sees it. But if you go a step further and you encourage someone uh, to commit a denial of service attack against Viet Thanh, then no one sees it. Uh, and so it's a much more profound way of silencing speech. Now, what Anonymous is doing is they're going after big commercial targets that they know are going to get back online. And so they're doing it as a way of basically saying, we're going to make your life very difficult for a few hours um, as a way of calling attention to your actions in this WikiLeaks situation. Um, And maybe that's justifiable. I I would prefer to see people writing angry blog posts, people organizing consumer boycotts, uh, people filing lawsuits. Uh, I think all of those would would be more effective. What worries me is that by legitimating DDoS and introducing it to a whole set of other people, I suspect we're going to see a lot more um, use of this. And we already know that there are folks out there who, as individuals, are using denial-of-service attacks by themselves uh, to try to silence speech. Uh, There's a, a hacker out there who calls himself the jester, Uh, who has a really long track record of taking down websites that he believes to be pro-jihadist. But his definition of pro-jihadist is pretty wide, uh, and uh, he is credited with one of the early DDoS attacks on on WikiLeaks. Um, I don't really want to provide philosophical support um, to people who decide that the way to respond to speech they don't like is by silencing it. Um, And so I don't want to go as far as saying that there's never a legitimate use of this, um, but I do think that celebrating this as a tactic um, has all sorts of potential downsides that I think people perhaps aren't thinking through carefully enough. Online, it sometimes looks like Ethan Zuckerman and Yevgeny Morozov are at serious odds over this DDoS thing. But from my perspective, it seems like they're simply arguing about hypotheticals. And so if there's one thing I hope my little radio show can accomplish this week, it is to remind these two internet geniuses that they are actually on the same team. 
my hope is that this moment doesn't just tell us, you know, PayPal and Amazon are bad. Um, because that, that's not actually the right lesson to take out of this. What's bad is we've built an architecture that doesn't work the way we believe it does and doesn't work the way we think it probably should. We want to believe that the Internet is a place where we can express ourselves freely and where as long as we're not you know, violating the law, we can say what we want to say. And it, it turns out to work that way a lot of the time, but not all the time. And so we then have to figure out how do we respond to that. One way to respond to that uh, would be to actually try to build public spaces. What I think is so hard about that is they can't be government spaces because there's going to be concerns about uh, certain types of speech on a government platform. They're going to have to figure out ways to sustain themselves, which means that there's got to be some sort of commercial aspect to it. But this would be a great time, I think, for someone to try to build um, content agnostic, free speech respecting, non-profit, democratically governed hosting companies of one fashion or another. Uh, whether or not that's a viable business, I don't know. Uh, but if there's ever going to be a time to make a case for it and try to get people uh, to get a business like that off the ground, this would be a good time for it. It remains to be seen how long it will take for that internet Ethan Zuckerman and Douglas Rushkoff talk so glowingly about to show up. I'm not holding my breath. And neither is Anonymous. The WikiLeaks story has definitely galvanized the internet's most infamous group of um, anonymous users. Internet researcher Gabriella Coleman first began studying Anonymous when they took on the Church of Scientology a few years ago. And she's fascinated by what they're up to now. Uh, one of the interesting things that I've seen debated among those anonymous who are involved against the Church of Scientology is that as they think about street protests, they struggle with what the object of their protest should be. Because with the Church of Scientology, it's very easy. It's the church and you show up to the church. And so as they're trying to organize the street kind of component, well, what, where should they protest? What should the object be? Which I think is interesting because it kind of points to the fact that when you're supporting WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, and fighting censorship, the object is the internet. Anonymous made a huge media splash with their DDoS attacks on PayPal and MasterCard, but they've also launched Operation LeakSpin. Leakspin is kind of a call to have people, not just anonymous, but anyone and everyone, to get their hands on the cables, because there's so many of them, right? And take the ones that are interesting and important to their local community and circulate them, disseminate them, and analyze their importance. And so in some ways, they're asking them to jump into the very thing that caused the controversy, but making it relevant in a very kind of particular way to particular communities. Gabriella Coleman says Operation Leakspin highlights an other facet of Anonymous, one often overlooked by the media because they'd rather stick to the story of zip-faced teenagers hacking away in a basement. 
obviously not everyone in anonymous is doing this. There are quite a few people who have significant art and design skills. And as part of their protest arsenal, they've created amazing images and logos and videos and dramatic manifestos as well that do give a very kind of strong sense, visual as well as political, of what they're trying to do. There is a kind of aesthetic tradition within Anonymous. And the kind of recent iteration or incarnation of Anonymous has been true to that aesthetic in, in many regards. And so in that way, it's identifiable as the Anonymous that came before. So I'm gonna describe one of the artifacts created for Operation Leak Spin. Uh, you can call it, it's funny because I wanna call some of their images posters. They're not posters, right? They're just images online, but they strike like posters. And this is an announcement about what Operation Leak Spin is. It's on a back, back, uh, it's on a back background with white writing and it says, gentlemen, we have at best given them a black eye. The game has changed. When the game changes, so too must our strategies. Operation Leak Spin. Begin searching through WikiLeaks. Find only the best, least exposed leaks you can get your hands on. Post summaries of them along with a complete source. Encourage the reader to read more. Make one to two minute YouTube videos reading the leaks. Use misleading tags, everything from Tea Party to Bieber. Post snippets of the leaks everywhere, news comments, fan forums, etc. They fear exposure. The fun begins. And so it's great because in this one image, it really gives a good sense of what the operation is about. And it's calling for massive participation from anyone who would like to kind of join in. And on the one hand, it asks people to uh, go through a kind of rational reading and circulation of these cables. On the other hand, it also, you know, ask people to be a little bit kind of tactical uh, in terms of spreading it, you know, by tagging it in ways that will allow it to circulate more broadly than if they weren't tagging it with things like Justin Bieber. I'd like to imagine that something as awesome as Operation Leakspin could solve all the problems that WikiLeaks has exposed about our internet and free speech. But that's just me, being a dreamer, as usual. But just as the Chinese censors went overboard during the Nobel Prize ceremony, blocking and deleting everything and anything that might refer to Liao Shibo and his Peace Prize, our corporate internet overlords do not consider our free expression to be one of their top priorities. It might not even be in the top 10. I doubt it's even on their list.
This episode of Too Much Information is called All You Have to Do is Ask. It was produced by Benjamin Walker and Bill Bowen, and it featured Jeremy Goldcorn, Isaac Mao, Christian Witten, Bill Bowen, Jeff Jarvis, Zainab Tefeki, Rebecca McKinnon, Jay Rosen, Douglas Rushkoff, Joe Alterio, Christopher Beam, Daniel Ellsberg, Jillian York, Yevgeny Morozov, Ethan Zuckerman, and Gabriella Coleman. There's a lot more information on the TMI playlist page, and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. All that at WFMU.org.